Ladies and gentlemen, 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 gentlemen you are now, 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 now listening to two, 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 the P13 Podcast. Yeah. Welcome back to the P13 Podcast. We are continuing part two of our discussion here with Dr. Chandler Bowles regarding pain. If you haven't listened to part one, he sits down with us and talks a little bit more about the mechanics regarding pain and some of the more physiological aspects regarding pain. In this part of the podcast, or this half I should say, we're going to be looking into some of the more physical and psychological aspects regarding pain once someone is in pain, looking at some of the therapies associated with helping one out of pain, and looking into some of the questions people have brought up regarding pain and how to deal with pain and get out of it. So sit back, relax, leave us a share, leave us a follow. Leave us a review uh, if you haven't done so already on all the major podcasting platforms and enjoy. This wow. kind of bring I don't know if this jumps up too far ahead because uh, I know we've been talking a lot about just like how pain arises or like how um, how the perspective of pain. I don't know if that's the best way to say this, but the perspective of pain comes to the forefront of this conversation. But it leads me or just leads into a thought for myself because you touched on it. It's like the differences in treatment between physicians, chiropractors and like physical therapists. Yeah. A few things like first, by virtue of my license, I, I don't technically advise on medication or pharmacology, just something to consider there. So I, I know that there's a there was a paper written a, a little while ago. And by that, I mean, like maybe a decade and some change, but looking at the idea of like who you see is what you get, you know, is the likelihood of getting an MRI higher if you were, if your first line of treatment, the first person who you saw was uh, an orthopedic surgeon, you know, or uh, would you get uh, like an EMG or an NCV test if you saw uh, a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician? I think that a lot of what it has to do with is like who you see, which, uh, you know, as, as spine care and the burden of global spine uh, related pain continues to grow in its prevalence and its impact on society, I think that there has been a pretty substantial push over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, perhaps at really doing away with pointless interventions and interventions that actually like harm patients downstream, both financially, like direct and indirect costs. But to, but to kind of bring it back, no matter who it is that you see, I, I'll describe what I would think would be optimal. In most cases, actually in all cases, <laughs> probably the first thing is to rule out things that are described as red flags, right? Scary stuff that could potentially implicate the patient long-term. Like examples of this would be, you know, yeah, doc, I was, uh, I was deadlifting yesterday and uh, now I, I, I've lost all control of my bladder function. Like, okay, like you should probably see someone who is much more equipped to literally do a surgical intervention or at least get that consult. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Like that's a really mm -hmm. easy example. I would say easy does not mean like not scary, but like an easy example of like, you're in the wrong spot. If you were seeing me, you would be in the wrong spot. Like you would need to get a surgical consult because what that points to is there's a significant compression, most likely on the, on your like spinal nerves, like the cauda equina, which no one's gonna be quizzed on this, but like a significant amount of pressure is on the nerves that 
supply, like your bladder bowel function. And we only have a narrow time window to get that back, if that's true. Other examples would be bilateral, like going down both legs, like severe, like lancinating electric-like pain. That would also be a situation where potentially seeing a physician, like who can do a bit more potentially invasive therapy, potentially that would need to be um, combated with pharmacology. Not always, but certainly would be one of the situations where I would press, I would press pause and refer to someone who has the capabilities of doing that. I think that as um, you mentioned, a chiropractor being potentially in the best spot to address like spine related pain, I think that that would certainly be a really valuable goal for uh, chiropractors to potentially assume the role of the like conservative spine care clinician. But uh, unfortunately, the way that chiropractic education is in the United States. And unfortunately, like I think uh, globally, in some cases, there are definitely exceptions like University of Southern Denmark would be a a bright shining light as far as quality uh, chiropractic education is concerned. There's still a lot of uh, antiquated rhetoric and antiquated information that permeates chiropractic institutions. You know, I don't don't know about broad strokes like that being, uh, you know, like I would want to refer to people who like I know and I know who would do right by patients. But the same thing would go for, you know, physical therapists. I have the privilege of knowing uh, a fair amount of incredibly gifted physical therapists. And I think that if you see uh, a very well-qualified physical therapist who's up to date on the literature, or if you see a chiropractor who is also up to date on the literature and practices in an evidence-based, evidence-based way, their treatment probably shouldn't look too different. Like, again, looking through the lens of we rule out red flags, we rule out those really scary things that can actually severely harm them in the long run, finding ways that they can stay active, finding ways that or finding things that do motivate them from an activity standpoint, and addressing pain related beliefs. Like, do you believe that because you have this particular pain that every time you move, that you are slowly but surely like, tearing a muscle or tearing a tendon or wearing down bone. Those are, those are pretty important questions, I think, to address on the front end. Uh, and the answer nine times out of 10 is no, that, that that's not actually what's taking place. And pain would be much better described in terms of sensitivity than damage. That, that all makes sense. And I think that's a good segue into how people can navigate their way through a potentially chronic pain experience. Like let's assume that they have seen a practitioner, red flags are ruled out and the practitioner is like, all right, maybe they do a little bit of manual therapy on them or something like that. And then they're like, try these things and continue forward with your moving and all that stuff. As people go through that, I think oftentimes they still experience some degree of pain. And that's what I've seen in our gym, people have gone to practitioners, get those that, that basic diagnosis and, and um, kind of treatment plan, but the pain doesn't resolve right away. So I guess what's like, what's maybe a realistic timeline for people to expect if they're trying to work through chronic pain and also what are some things that they can maybe do to help the process move along? Yeah. Well, for starters, pain is a 
pain is idiosyncratic. Like it's very individual, right? It's, it's very unique to the individual. This, this certainly isn't going to be, you know, advice for everyone, yeah. but I, I like to think of rehab in some ways. And I think that this, this was, uh, I don't remember who actually gave me this, this metaphor, this visual, but I, I've, I've always really liked it. I've used it ever since to, to think of pain or like rehabilitation in terms of like the stock market over time. Like I think we've been tracking the stock market like since like 1879, looking how it's done over time, right? And if we look at that uh, on like on a graph, like a, like an XY curve, right? Or sorry, an XY like graph, like tracking mm -hmm. it, right? We can point to ways where there are like significant like, like downturns, right? Yeah. And but we can also see really good examples of like it like peaking. The trajectory is almost like linear in the direction of growth. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like we, yeah. it can, the stock market continues to grow and improve over time. But there are, we can point to examples where it, we go through recessions, we go through downturns and also examples where we go like, like we exceed expectations. Right. But the trajectory over time is, is this. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I discuss this with, with people, I, I hopefully on the front end do a semi adequate job of saying like, you will have a regression here. You, you, it is more than likely you will have two to three pretty, pretty impactful regressions within the context of rehabilitation or seeing me or seeing another provider. But it's, it's important to temper that with like, th these are to be expected. Yeah. It, it does not necessarily mean that it, things aren't working or that you are not improving. It's just important to consider that within the time frame of rehabilitation, that the trajectory is still going to be like positive, like in the right direction with folks who are seeing fill in the blank practitioner. My caution would be that if there is an over-reliance on manual therapies or passive interventions, this, you know, all from, you know, spinal manipulation to like manual therapy, you know, like ART, these popular things are like grasping with a tool, cupping, needling, whatever. It, if there's an, an over-reliance on that, or if that's, if that's dominating the time in the treatment room, for lack of a better word, again, this is, these are, these are my opinions, but I, I would, I would discourage uh, treatments that are more passive than they are active. And I say that because the, the sooner that we can facilitate self-efficacy or build self-efficacy uh, in a patient, like their belief in their ability to do something or overcome something, um, the better off I think that we are and they are. The more that patients are able to see that they are more in the driver's seat and I'm more like in a back seat, maybe in like a, like a baby chair, like the better that they are, I think going to be in the long run, right? The more that they're in charge of their yeah. own rehabilitation, I think it builds a little bit more reliance on themselves. And, you know, do I believe that there is a role for manual therapy, things like manipulation? I, I do to a degree. I, I think I take a judicious approach to that because what I've seen and what my lived experience has been is that, you know, I think what's reaped the most dividends as it relates to care is getting patients like active, educating them on the realities of their pain that like, you're not broken. If you experience discomfort, it's not that something is being torn or something's being crushed or broken. Please continue to engage in activities that uh, are meaningful. As an example, one of the patients I saw at a clinic in Denver, uh, 
she broke down in the treatment room discussing how all she wanted to do was hike and her pain had prevented her from doing that. And she had been living with this pain for a fair amount of time and unpacking the story a little bit more. She had seen providers who had done primarily passive interventions and no one had really, I think from what, if I heard her correctly, no one had really taken the time to unpack her story and basically get her to say out loud what it is that she wanted to do. Like, what is this pain explicitly preventing you from doing? If you could do one thing right now and you had no pain at all, what would it be? I, I want to, I want to hike. Boom. That's our treatment goal. Like, guess what we're going to do? We're going to hike, mm. you know? And, and, and of course we don't start day one doing a 14er in the Rockies, but <laughs> like that being like our trajectory, like that's, um, as, as it relates to the people who like you guys see and work with as clients and in the group setting, like I said, it's pain is very, very, very individual. And so these are generalizations, right? As, as far yeah. as recommendations are concerned, but yeah. certainly staying active, which obviously if they're with you guys, they probably are. And I, I think I would also say that Policing perfection. I think Dr. Uh, that's a phrase by Craig Liebenson, I think. Anyway, like policing perfection as it relates to movement, um, I think I think has more negative outcomes mm -hmm. down the line now than I did, you know, ages ago. Like thinking within the context of a neutral spine posture whenever you're doing X, Y, and Z thing. When we kind of unpack and unravel what neutral spine neutral spine is we're actually in a lot more lumbar flexion than we thought we were and also neutral for you is probably different than neutral for me and so all i mean all i mean by that going back to the to the question was i think people having adopting a mindset of like movement optimism and i i think that term is taken from Dr. Greg Lehman, who's an amazing resource in the event you guys ever want to have him. He's uh, definitely a huge focal point for all the reading I've done over the past few years. But, you know, having an eye, a posture of movement optimism and not policing perfection, neutral spine, uh, knee valgus, knees being over toes with fill in the blank exercise, that movement uh, is not this uh, binary right and wrong mm -hmm. thing, but there's this vast like gray area and so that would be like my first thought uh yeah that and potentially not an over-reliance on uh passive passive interventions like 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 i mentioned yeah does that kind of get to the the question yeah. yeah and i guess for more specificity and clarity so you know we kind of talked about the passive interventions. so in terms of active interventions that's essentially the way i understand it after your the way you describe the, the patient you worked with in Denver on the hiking. I mean, that's essentially like, uh, for that person to seek out more movement or maybe more movement that's similar to what they might be afraid to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. I, I think so. The, uh, the idea of graded exposure, like we're not just going to put them on a 14 er right yeah. to start that process rehabilitation in that context would be slowly but surely introducing movements that mirror or mimic ultimately 
the activity that they want to do that they find yeah. meaningful. It could be as simple as like, we're, we're going to step up, do like step ups, demi lunges, like not even all the way down, just a little yeah. bit. Let's get a little mm-hmm. bit of movement there. You're going to get some knee flexion, some hip flexion, boom. And then we build a level of tolerance at that particular benchmark. And then we find another one. And I think those are also really good ways for when people have a setback. Like we mentioned with the stock market example, when people have a setback, we can put everything in context, right? Mm-hmm. And say, totally, like today you've had a hard, today was a bad day. Like you had a hard day today and you feel like you've regret, regressed, but like remember like the first day that you came in and what we discussed and what you were capable of that day juxtaposed with what you're able to do right now or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a week ago. And I think framing it in that context, I think can be, or I've experienced success uh, looking through it with that lens. I, I mentioned graded exposure, but also the idea of like con- like confrontation. And what I mean by that is confronting certain beliefs about yeah. pain. Yeah. If I, you know, you know, if I bend over and touch my toes, I know I'm going to blow my back out. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let Let's have you start by bending over and touching the middle of your thigh, which is basically like no movement at all, right? right. But to them, it's this monumental thing. And then slowly but surely, you know, you know, we get past bending over and touching your toes and hell, a month later, you're having them doing Jefferson curls. That would be, as it relates to, you know, your question, yes, active interventions would be where the patient is doing the bulk of the like physical work, mm-hmm. but also even if we want to use like mental work where they, you know, discuss their fears, like what is your pain limiting you from doing? How is it impacting your life what's the worst thing you could do for your pain right now if i were to ask you to do it like you would feel like you'd fall apart that's that's the idea of confronting those beliefs and gradually exposing yourself i think those are optimal ways barring certain exceptions but i think those are optimal ways to get people out of pain and improving their like their quality of life yeah yeah um so We'll dive into now some some questions that we have for you. Mm-hmm. Some of them will dance into theory, okay, <laughs> which right. is yeah. fine, you know, uh, and potentially mm-hmm. anecdotal experiences of your own. Um, but uh, we'll just kind of go through these as we as we wrap up. So, one question that I have that I'm curious about kind of jumping around in this list, but it's on, and some other people have this question too in the gym, thoughts on something like uh, foam rolling or self myofascial release. And I guess as we had our conversation, does that fall into a passive like form of remedy or would you say that's more active? Good, certainly a, a good question and definitely something that I think a ton of people talk about. And even the, the gym where I go, like I'm, I see people do it and things like that. And I, I for a long time did that as well. I, you remember when we were resilient, like doing like oh, gut yeah. smashes with trying to release our psoas. <laughs> psoas. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So one, I'm, I'm going to take, I mentioned Dr. Greg Lehman a moment ago, but I want to take one of his phrases because I think it's it's super valuable and I don't think it's very much like a Switzerland kind of approach, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean universal healthcare. I wish. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you enjoy foam rolling, please continue to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you enjoy foam rolling before going on a run or lifting, please continue to do so. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? 
Yeah. If, if you if you enjoy <laughs> foam rolling as a warm up or a cool down, um, we'll we'll use it in the context of a warm up. If you enjoy foam rolling or self myofascial release, I would say please feel free to continue doing it. It's probably not going to harm you yeah. in any measurable way. Now I'm sure there are outliers example of people who have bruised themselves. Sure. But it's probably not going to harm anybody. That being said, I think that everything in life has an opportunity cost, right? So for every five minutes you spend foam rolling is five minutes you're probably not spending loading an area in some way or maybe more dynamically loading something to prepare for the movement at hand. Let's just use an example of a squat. Like if you feel like you need more ankle mobility and you foam roll prior to squatting because you think that, that, that it improves your ankle mobility. And, and maybe it does. Maybe foam rolling does actually decrease uh, a level of sensitivity of the area or of the muscles that could potentially reduce ankle dorsiflexion. I'm not really aware of that actually being the case, but um, you know, when you spend your time doing that, like what if instead of doing that, you did like low, like heavy loaded, like calf raises, as a way to prime that area for like ultimately like the goal of the movement that day. So everything in life has an opportunity cost. Uh, yeah. Every minute you spend doing something is a minute you're not spending doing something else. As far as the concept of like myofascial release, I'm not entirely sure that we are releasing anything yeah. uh, in that context. What I think takes place there, and again, I, I'm going to be edging into like, like anecdote a little bit mm -hmm. here, but as far as I know, and like my ceiling of understanding, we may be decreasing levels of sensitivity yeah. in certain areas, which which may translate to the perception in a workout that maybe you feel more confident doing something, or maybe you feel more confident going a little bit lower in a squat. And again, through that lens, I, I don't have any opposition at all, but I don't think any like adhesions or specific tissues are like that were once like bunched up are somehow mm -hmm. just washing away i don't i don't think that that is taking place yeah. at that level i mean if we look at you know there was a concept for the longest time the interventions like art or or, or graston technique were like releasing myofascial adhesions we we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that's that's not happening with those things at all basically there's a are we decreasing sensitivity in that area potentially in some cases yeah is it transient like short-lived also yes yeah. But yeah. Again, like it, people like foam rolling. I, I think that it's, I think that it's totally fine. It's not going to harm them. I know there was a paper that came out like maybe like three days ago, looking at how like foam rolling, maybe in, uh, increased blood flow to the areas that were uh, mm. rolled, if you will. Yeah. And that, and that sounds good. Like at surface value or at face value, that sounds good. Like, Oh, cool. It increases, you know, blood flow to that area. But then we kind of have to ask ourselves, well, what else increases blood flow to that area? Could it be phrases. almost anything? <laughs> could, it, could it be anything? <laughs> is it is that a, is that a surrogate marker for something that we're not even measuring? And again, um, I don't have all the answers to the to the questions that I just asked myself rhetorically. <laughs> but it's, I think that people could spend their time doing things, uh, doing other things. Maybe mm. that that's what I would say. But that's a very like personal opinion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know that there's there's like there are strength coaches out there, and even I thought this was interesting. Kelly Sturet. Uh, the mm -hmm. supple leopard guy, he, he, he posted something the other day looking at foam rolling and it was like, he said, foam rolling doesn't work. And he had this huge long, like kind of like a diatribe and talking about how like 
people still use it, people still enjoy it, people still benefit from it, and all these different things. And and I have to say that I, I in most ways, I very much agree with what he said. First of all, when we say just foam rolling work, what do we mean by work? Right. Like, let's yeah. define what work is. Yeah, I think that there's this interesting pendulum that that swings between people who are like so so evidence based, like if it doesn't have any like evidence to do this that, you should we should all toss it. And I, I think that as far as a camp is concerned, I probably lean a little bit closer in that direction. But I also have to appreciate that I am not a uh, strength coach. I don't work with major like uh, athletes, peak athletes. And there's strength coaches that, that utilize foam rolling five to seven days a week for their athletes in some cases. And so I can't, I don't want to underscore their level of expertise, but did I talk myself into a hole just now? I, I don't know. I, I think, I think they're good questions. I think they're good questions we can ask about like, what is the utility and like, why am I doing it? What's my, yeah, end, so ult- what's my ult- end goal? Yeah. So ultimately if it's something that you are willing to give up the opportunity costs for, in the sense of doing something else and it makes you feel good, then there's nothing wrong with it, mm-hmm. but also not getting confused about what it's, what it might be potentially doing. Yeah. Yeah. You said it a lot better than I did. So <laughs> it's okay. I've done a few of these. Uh, That's why he gets paid the big things. bucks. I certainly don't. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, also, where are you sending my check for this? We never uh, talked about that. Ooh, yeah. Uh, we'll have to get your address. We'll check with our secretary. <laughs> See, um, the thing is, all our money's in a savings account. And, and it takes a NFTs. few days to get. We'll, we'll send you an yeah. NFT. <laughs> Please do. I'll send you a screenshot, too. Perfect. Um, okay, so then uh, just a few other questions. Are there things that we can do that we can, that, that can put our body in a better state to cope with pain. Let's assume, yes, we're being active. Are there other mm-hmm. things like is, I'm not sure if you've, and again, this can be theoretical and anecdotal, like meditation, things like, like breath work, cold exposure. Like, are there things that we can do to essentially influence our body's tolerance of pain? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you said, obviously like training, exercise has, provides from my understanding it increases our pain threshold to a degree in certain situations so certainly exercise and training i would advocate advocate for for literally everything ever period um but yeah and again this seems like common or conventional wisdom but sleep if there is an issue with like sleep hygiene i think that that buffer we have gets smaller if we are not, if we don't have good sleep hygiene, I think that would be a, you know, one of the strongest things we could talk about those two things, exercise, sleep hygiene. And again, you know, thinking about how our, this isn't about like cold theory, but it's like, it's like, how are your relationships with people in your life? Do you have good, meaningful relationships? Do you have a good community that, that plays a huge role, like the mental aspect and, and what can ultimately lead towards our cup overflowing? Of, mm-hmm. of stressors leading to a pain experience. I think relationships play a massive role in that as well. From a nutrition standpoint, I know that some work, I believe at University of Brussels, I can't remember the actual name of the, the researcher, but he had done a little bit of work looking at how improving dietary choices. And you're going to ask me what specifics, I can't even remember what they are. So again, this is very like grain of salt information, but the changing mm-hmm. people's diet did mitigate pain in some ways in a particular demographic 
beyond that, I think it's really adopting like a healthier diet. If you have access to those types of foods, if you can cook more of your foods, that is arguably a better decision, but certainly not everybody has access to, to do that. Eat less processed foods, eat more vegetables. I mean, this is like, you don't need me for this, right? For that aspect. And it's also not my forte. It's not my, my level or area of expertise. I'm still waiting to find my level of expertise, but, um, <laughs> but, um, those things, as far as, uh, you mentioned breathing and I, I don't want to circuitously link this, like the information we have on deep, slow breathing to like, ultimately like mitigating pain. Mm-hmm. But an, an interesting paper that looked at deep, slow breathing as an intervention with people with pain, I believe that was a condition of their inclusion that they were people with longer standing bouts of pain that I think a 10 week intervention with deep, slow breathing exercises, lowered sympathetic tone, um, like our sympathetic nervous system, our fight yeah. or flight, which is an yeah. example. It did lower sympathetic tone in those patients and I believe that was one of their like primary outcomes was to see if it, if it did that, um, with higher sympathetic tone, think of our threshold again, decreasing. So we, we perceive more things than we normally would if we had less sympathetic tone where our threshold is higher and those things that don't even reach our consciousness. Does that make sense? Yeah. As far as I'm trying to think about the specifics here, I have, I have heard good things again we're getting to like more anecdotal territory here about like practicing mindfulness and meditation as a very useful and low cost intervention as it relates to people with chronic pain beyond that you mentioned like cold therapy i'm i'm not familiar with anything that points to that but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not there or that it doesn't exist it's just not something where where i've uh i've dealt into too much i hope this doesn't sound rude but really like don't be born like in a low socioeconomic status position. Mm-hmm. All that stuff that's completely out of our control. Like don't be born like poor yeah. outcomes are worse. And I'm not trying to make that a joke. It's very real. Don't smoke. Don't have direct family members who smoke. And again, these are things that are very much like out of our control, but those are, we can, yeah. we can point to those things as saying these are poorly or strongly linked to poor outcomes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. beyond those recommendations kind of going back a little bit to a moment to the the idea of movement optimism and looking at movements as binary, like, yes, this is good. No, this is bad. And like, like knee valgus during a squat, am I going to coach knee valgus during a squat? No, I'm not. That doesn't mean that at higher levels of, of athletes under more load, if they move into a valgus position that, and then they get out of at the bottom of the squat that I'm going to correct that. But I think also having a level of like movement, uh, grace, if you will, like being okay with something not rigidly fitting this, this definition of how movement should or shouldn't look based on research that was done decades ago. Yeah. Um, I would also say that that's probably reasonable to, to think about. Yeah. Like the lumbar spine flexion debate, which is a whole other thing. Does that make sense? Like having a little bit of movement optimism. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess a good analogy to that is you look at any, well, you look at a lot of different 
professional athletes and even just the sports that they play, right? I've recently started doing uh, jujitsu. Mentioned that a few times. And he's, so pr he's proud of it. Uh, it's fun. It's cool guy but, alert over here. Yeah, hey. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed and me being someone who had in the past, you and I were both kind of experiencing some chronic low back pain stuff that would flare up when we, when we work together. That sport, I mean, the guys that have been doing it for a while, the amount that they need to flex their spine to get into certain positions is insane. And as I've started to do it, it's weird. I, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because just I'm now exposing my body more to that and or or if I'm starting to let go of some of those beliefs, right, that mm -hmm. that I once held and I think I already had cuz I've gotten into Jefferson curls things like that, but I mean, you look at any sport and what is required of that sport more often than not is not movement as well perfect movement as defined by, like you said, papers that were written so long ago. It's, it's very, mm -hmm. it's almost abstract, right? For lack of a better term, maybe. So yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a good thing to highlight, right? Like athletes move very dynamically in a lot of different positions that are not balanced, uniform and all of the above. And, and they're more than okay. They're very capable. Like LeBron running up and down the court with duck feet. Like that. <laughs> I guess that's what right. it does. That's the thing. Right. I think so. I'm pretty sure yeah. he I've seen Oh, he's more, yeah. Yeah, his yeah. are always like Right. And I've out. seen yeah. I've seen like like you know, there's there's various accounts on Instagram that will post, you know, well, knees over toes that will post like a, a snapshot of Michael Jordan cutting and the the angle that his ankle and his knee is at is just it's incredible and but it's it's also not what would be called ideal right mm -hmm. and he i don't think really ever suffered from knee pain that i know of i don't know I don't maybe at the so, end no. of his career but he played professional basketball so <laughs> right yeah that's all these are really really good points right like mm -hmm. oh if you're if your uh, ankles don't look like this then like that's bad like what do you mean and, yeah. and, and your your discussion of jiu-jitsu like out a very salient memory from resilient was one time dave ray was talking to me he was like you know you and josh are the way you coach people doing these certain movements you you try to limit flexion lumbar flexion at all costs yeah he said but like dude i train jiu-jitsu with these guys and some of them train in the gym remember those guys came to the gym yeah it's yeah. like the amount of like like crunches and like ab related workouts that they did pre and post class and stuff like that like yeah was like you're gonna tell them that they can't do like flexion and back then like i was very like narrow-minded like myopic with how i was viewing things mm -hmm. and back then it would have been like yeah it's like it's bad for the spine like it, yeah. but it's, it's very it's also very context specific like you need a requisite amount of you know abdominal strength in a flexion movement with jujitsu, mm -hmm. I imagine I don't do it. I'm not like as cool as you, but like I'm sure you could speak to well, that. Um, you can get there. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm working. <laughs> I'm trying to grow the mustache. So um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do Do I think that uh, certain athletes or, or you know athletic endeavors are you want to control for certain movements or do like a a gymnast who is you know depends so heavily on like mobility would training like a maximal or super maximal deadlift you know in neutral spine, you know, be the best move for that person. You know, I, I don't know. My guess is 
maybe not like maybe there's more optimal mm-hmm. ways to train yeah. in that context but yeah I, I think that we don't leave enough room for nuance and and we in the space of like training especially i think that there's this policing that exists yeah. your torso was too far forward when you were ascending on that squat and like okay yeah you know it like how it's supposed to fit into this very like rigid like Right. And I, I don't know, I think that, that that comes from these pervasive beliefs that I don't think actually have many legs to stand on uh, mm-hmm. anymore, but mm-hmm. they certainly get clicks and uh, they're easy yeah. to understand. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a problem. Yeah. Um, I, I love this quote by uh, Daniel Kahneman. He said, knowing very little makes it easy to form a coherent pattern. Mm. You know, if, if you if you only see like, oh, well, you know, knee valgus is, you know, bad or it's an injury mechanism. Therefore, it is bad without appreciating all the nuance of how our hips fit into our like, like or our uh, femurs insert into our acetabulum, into our hips and how the angle of those dictate how far in or out or externally rotated or internally rotated our knees are. I'm getting off into a tangent again, but I, I just, again, the whole <laughs> idea good. is to appreciate that there's there's so much nuance, especially mm-hmm. in this space. And I think we've criminalized and we've, pol- we've policed these things that I think have only served to actually create more fear and prevent yeah. movement when movement could have existed or like right. activity when activity like should have existed. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's also where I think that, that coaches, trainers, strength coaches, things like that have such an amazing ability to like impact the world and, and, mm-hmm. and help people in ways that providers can't as mm-hmm. much or just don't like I don't know, a little soapbox for a second, but I really do. Yeah, like no, that's, that's uh, impact. Yeah. I mean, and, and Michael and I have talked about this plenty of times that my early days as a trainer, uh, people would say, do a movement and they'd be like, how'd that look? And I'd be like, I'd, I'd get textbook, right? I'd be like, well, yeah, yeah. you know, should have had a little bit more of this, this, and this <laughs> nowadays yeah. when people are like, how'd that look? I'm like, how did it feel? Mm-hmm. You know, where did oh, you feel yeah. it? You know, you should uh, put that on a shirt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm serious. It's, yeah, like, yeah. I think that that's that's phenomenal. Like, what a great For sure. response. Yeah, and and uh, that I've found has been much more useful, and then dictating what we will do based based on their response to to that. And if they're like, well, it created a shooting pain in my knee, and then it's like, okay, well, let's maybe adjust some things to see if we can make that not happen, right? And and then we go from there. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And so I guess kind of a question that maybe this could be the what we wrap things up with. If someone is experiencing chronic pain and we've kind of we've identified that there is very much so a belief element to it. How can that person start to work through? And I guess maybe we've touched on some strategies to do this, but how can how can that person work through disconnecting from that belief because sometimes it's not as easy as just being like no i will be fine when i deadlift because then when you go deadlift and you're telling yourself you're fine and then you go do it and you're like that fucking hurt again that can then continue to create reinforce that belief so how can that person that's experiencing pain wrestling with those beliefs how can they kind of work through that yeah this is going to be like excuse me like stereotypical like preface if you are experiencing pain or 
some other condition, it probably is important for me to put this out there that you should, this is not medical advice, that you should see a provider if you need to. Yeah, That's out there now. For that individual and looking through the lens of uh, a deadlift, as you mentioned, the pain is very real. That's important to acknowledge that the pain uh, is real. The experiences that they are having are real. And in fact, as we mentioned from earlier, they've gotten even better probably at experiencing pain. And they've linked deadlifting to pain. Movements get linked with pain the same way that smells get linked to memory. Mm. Like I, I vividly remember the smell you know, of the beach house where I visited when I was a little kid. Yeah. In this context with that person, we discussed earlier about graded exposure and gradually confronting certain beliefs they may have about certain loaded movements, the deadlift in this case. How can we and how can you, literally anyone on like the healthcare team, trainers, strength coaches, other providers, can we find a way to mirror that movement in a way that is non-threatening to them mentally? Can we put them in a position or load them in a position where it mirrors or mimics one position of the deadlift in a way that in their mind, they're not experiencing pain and they don't feel the perception of threat? I would say that's, a, that's like, that would be the first place where I start. And against that backdrop, you're kind of only limited by your imagination. Like, you know, deadlifting, uh, I'm scared of deadlifting. Okay, well, like, what if, again, this is theoretical, like, what if we put you on your back and put your, like, legs up against a wall in the position where they would be for a mm. sumo or conventional pole, yeah. and maybe had just like a resistance band where you're just laying on the ground. And obviously the vectors of force are different in this case, but dude, you're in or or whomever you're in a pretty flexed like position for the deadlift. Like you would be approaching the bar. Yeah. You're just in a different position. Like, does that hurt? How do you feel in that position? Even like root your feet into the wall. Like you would, if you were under a bar. Yeah. Um, From there, what does it look like doing this single leg? What about that? What if we, you know, like did it like an accessory load, whether it be with a chain or with a resistance band, does that change the perception of threat? And again, like using just your imagination to build one thing after another. And I think setting adequate expectations on the front end being like, we're, we're not going to pull your max lift today, but that would ultimately be the goal. And again, setting realistic expectations about if you do have pain, that that is a normal uh, expected thing along this journey, but finding way to finding ways to load them in a way that mirrors what they want to do and in a way that they don't perceive as threatening. I think that is an amazing place to start and build on from there, because it's like if they are thinking that deadlifting caused my low back pain or caused this issue, and now I'm scared of deadlifting in like any form, it's sort of like me telling you guys like don't think of a pink elephant and like they can't they can't help but not think about it so there's the context behind the movement itself builds and builds on itself yeah yeah so pink elephant anyway, would be adorable try... yeah right i know i tell you um <laughs> god, stay focused thomas my god uh, i try yeah Calla knows that, how it goes I mean, that, I, would I be, that would be like where i i would probably start in a case like that yeah yeah 
that makes a lot of sense and it's it's interesting because i've never thought about it in that way just like you said your limit is your imagination and i think that can provide a lot of a lot of useful knowledge for i mean people experiencing it coaches out there that might be listening as well Khaled, do you have any questions to follow up with before we wrap up the show i do not these this has all been like i've been just soaking it in i soak in a lot of things and he does when especially when there's guests that come on it's it's very much a it's a great experience for me because i get to see it another vast side of like health and fitness through yeah. different lenses as well perspective is always valuable yeah yeah so again we appreciate like the opportunity that you've given us with uh, all the knowledge on pain we're approaching the end here, but is there anything else you'd like to plug or add into this conversation here today, Dr. Uh, Bowles? Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nailed yeah, it. First time. It, it crushed it. <laughs> I remember my first time. Anyway, I think that some of the best people and the best voices in this discussion, Dr. Greg Lehman would be... Uh, probably one of my like biggest recommendations for people if they want to check uh, him out. He's an amazing researcher. He's actually a, a PT uh, and uh, a chiropractor, but he, um, Oh my God. Coaches. He also has a master's in uh, biomechanics. So he's, <laughs> he's, 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 an amazing, he's an amazing, yeah, right. He's an amazing resource. Other people who are very important, I think to listen to in this sphere, Peter O'Sullivan, which we're getting a little bit more into like the research side of things. So not as, not as many people I would say in the public would access his resources, but he is definitely an amazing voice within the, the sphere of like low back pain and also dispelling myths associated with longstanding low back pain. And like those two, great, Greg Lehman, Peter O'Sullivan, and certainly uh, Adam Meekins. Uh, he's much more of a controversial guy, but he is a uh, physio, or physical therapist, physio out in the in the, uh, in the UK. Like I said, a bit more on the controversial side, but mostly because he just doesn't want to hear it. Like he doesn't want, he doesn't have time for nonsensical like uh, pseudo, mm-hmm. pseudoscientific bullshittery. Like it's yeah. just not for him, but he's a great resource in this space as well. So. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Again, thank you for taking a, a generous amount of time here today to to knowledgeify us all. He's using the word <laughs> I'm again. I'm using the word again. Got to. Got to. But uh, you, with you that gotta make sure said, it's... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I got to try to get it over, you know? You just try to get it over on here. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, would you like to hit our tagline? Avoid the bullshit. Boom. Nailed Good it. way to uh, look at life, so... Yeah, I like that. I'm here for it. Also, a great shirt. Three great shirt ideas. We got it. Shirts coming soon, folks. Oh, man. Thank you again for listening to the P13 podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a five star rating. This podcast was produced by Project 13 Gyms, and a special thanks to Studio Pod Media for providing the studio space and additional production. Absolutely. You can find us on social media on Instagram at Project 13 Gyms. You can find myself at Kemifan. That is K-E-M-I-F-A-N. How about you, Thomas? Where can they find you on your social media? You can find me at Conway Bunga. That's C-O-N-W-A-Y. B-U-N-G-A. You can also check us out at project13gyms.com. And if you're in the SF area, come train with us at Project 13 Gyms in Lower Knob Hill.